Before we start the program, I want to introduce you to an event that's coming up this August. The Loma Linda Institute of Worship is offering a worship leadership certificate to help leaders and pastors take their congregation's worship experience to the next level. This August 9-12 through 12 event will include presenters Randy Roberts, Adriana Pereira, Nicholas Zork, Wayne Buckner, Richard Hickam, and more, and provide the opportunity to perform on stage with Steve Green and the Heritage Singers. Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. Joel is a precocious baby. He loves amusement parks, pancakes, and bubbles. What is it about bubbles? He's the youngest of three children. He can't really talk yet, can't walk either, and has difficulty walking and swallowing. But if you ever met him, it would take you a mere two seconds to recognize that when it comes to Joel, there is much more lying beneath the surface. His life began in a rather ordinary manner. His parents, Amy and Ryan, met while they were chatting online. They fell in love, got married when they turned 21, and then moved into a suburban home in Colorado. Amy is a stay-at-home mom. Ryan is a computer programmer. Like I said, Pretty ordinary. Soon the family's routine centered around an endless cycle of midnight feedings and messy diapers. Not that I know anything about diapers. <laughs> Did I mention everything was quite normal? Until one morning, Amy noticed that Joel's head was cocked ever so slightly to the side. Well, nothing to worry about. She would just keep an eye on it. After a few days, the little boy began to vomit uncontrollably. Still no concern, probably just a bug. Better safe than sorry. They went to the hospital. The physicians performed a battery of tests, and that's when they discovered it, the darkness. A lesion in his brain, a biopsy would follow, and then the diagnosis, a tumor, malignant, ATRT, extremely difficult to treat. The prognosis, rather bleak. The two-year survival rate with people with this malady is a little under 50%. Amy and Ryan's life began to spin into chaos. Their tidy routine replaced by an endless cycle of radiation, chemotherapy, Visits to the hospital. Can you imagine? 
The nightmarish experience of two parents who are attempting to provide comfort to their ailing child while recognizing that comfort is hard to come by. One morning, Ryan was in the hospital with Joel, and Joel began to cry. Desperately, Ryan attempted to provide some comfort. He held them to no avail. Began to sway him, which only made matters worse. Offered him a drink of juice, which Joel immediately spit out. In a last-ditch desperate attempt, Ryan caressed the young boy's head only to have the baby begin to violently bang it against the crib in utter desperation. Helpless and hopeless, Ryan did the only thing that one could do in a situation like that. He dropped to his knees and began to pray. A strange feeling of peace came over him. And after that had subsided an epiphany What if he could document his family's struggle with cancer in the most millennial way possible? A video game. Now, the purpose of the video game wasn't to advance through any levels. It wasn't even to win. It was merely to serve as a testament to Joel's bravery. He went to Amy with the idea, and she was taking a back at first. Not sure if there would be any market for that type of game, but she didn't want to discourage him. And so they plunged whatever little savings they had into developing this game. Something strange happened while they worked. Those tumors that continued appearing in Joel's brain began to diminish and shrink. His strength returned. He was able to walk and talk and swallow once again. He was their little miracle baby. Until that day. Oh, the darkness. The familiar ring on the telephone. A grave voice on the other end of the line. It was the oncologist. Tumor's back. It's in a part of the brain that we have already radiated, and we cannot continue providing treatment without risking brain death. I am so sorry. There's nothing we can do. Little Joel passed away a few weeks after that, which left both Amy and Ryan with a quandary. Coupled with the unmitigated grief of having to experience that most unnatural act, namely burying one's children, they also had a design problem. How were they going to finish their video game? Because after all, this was supposed to be a witness to bravery not a documentary on death. But alas, there were investors. Promises had been made. 
And so again, half-heartedly, Ryan got back to work. He decided that the last scene in his video game would be in that hospital room where his son passed away. The purpose of the game would be to provide some palliative care for the ailing boy. As he was finishing, he recognized that that wasn't the way he wanted to remember his son. And so... He tossed that sketch into the trash and began the construction of something new, something exciting, something awe-inspiring and hope-giving. He would remember his child by creating a virtual cathedral full of balloons and pancakes and, yeah, you guessed it, bubbles. Feverishly, he began to code every aspect of his son's personality into that cathedral. From the stained windows, to the pews, to the piped organ in the back. As the project was concluding, Amy and Ryan said, we feel discouraged. This was our one way of connecting to our son's memory. But we recognize it's only an echo and a poor one at that. So this afternoon, we continue our study on the last week. We huddle together with Matthew as he invites us to partake in a conversation that masterfully combines kings and cathedrals. Can you picture it? It's Monday morning. You're living in first century Jerusalem. The streets are still strewn with the palm leaves. The echoes of Hosanna still ring through the air. The city itself has been driven to a fever pitch as the people hold tight, hold tight to those dreams of kings and crowns. Now, you and I know that at week's end, those hopes, well, those hopes will be crushed. They'll be crushed by a cross. But before that, oh, before that, Monday, Monday must come. Allow me to craft a bit of context that will serve as background for the text that we will be studying this afternoon. It is found in the Gospel of Matthew, the 21st chapter, verses 12 through 17. Jesus most likely entered Jerusalem through the east gate. Upon his arrival, he would have been greeted by the massive temple compound, a vast array of elegant edifices which had a first century historian comment that he who had not seen Herod's temple had not truly witnessed a beautiful building. The sprawling complex stretched for over 30 acres 
And at the heart, well, at the heart was the sanctuary. It was surrounded by an infinite network of porticos and terraces designed to inspire community and the creation of small to mid-sized groups of Bible study. It is probably in one of these porticos that the scene depicted in Matthew 21, 12 through 17 occurred. This is the Jerusalem of the first century. And as Jesus begins to weave in and out of the crowd, as he steps onto the court that belonged to the Gentiles, the reader must recognize, you and I must recognize, that there's a lot of dynamics at play. First, well, first you have people. Uh, there's a lot of them. New Testament scholar Joachim Jeremiah estimates that during Jesus' time, the population of Jerusalem was comprised of around 30,000 people. But during that last week, during Passover, the population swelled to over 180,000. Now, if you're a germaphobe like I am, or if you're a bit claustrophobic, you can understand why there is a sense of heightened anxiety. Well, next you have geography. Jesus is a Galilean. And that word carries with it some baggage. Galilee was separated from the southern province of Judea by Samaria, and, for, and had for all intents and purposes been under separate control and administration since the 10th century BC. Next? Well, next you have the issue of culture. The Judeans viewed their northern neighbors as crude and crass country cousins. And if that wasn't enough, you had different languages. The Galileans spoke a very distinct type of Aramaic with slovenly consonants that served as the butt of many a Judean joke. And then, ah, then. Now, how can we forget there's the issue of religion? Those inhabitants of Jerusalem saw their Galilean neighbors as practicing a religion that was lax on both ritual and praxis. All of these dynamics combined lead us to the conclusion that even the strictest Galilean Jew would have felt like a foreigner in Jerusalem. In very much the same way as an Irishman would feel in London or a Texan in Loma Linda. Well, that doesn't really work, does it? I'm going to have to rethink that analogy. What cannot be debated is that in the section that antecedes our text for today, there are definitely two camps. You can find it right there in Matthew chapter 21, verse 11. It is the Galileans who have attached themselves to Jesus. It is they who have proclaimed him king on the outskirts of the city. The Judeans? The Judeans view Jesus with some suspicion. 
And so they ask a question, who is this? To which Jesus' kinfolk respond, he's one of us. This is Jesus, the prophet from Galilee in Nazareth. At that Monday, as Jesus is making a beeline to the temple, it is safe to say that the city of Jerusalem views him with this just a smidge of suspicion and a tinge of trepidation. Matthew's account begins to pick up some speed as he recounts how Jesus drives away, he casts out, he expels those who are buying and selling on the temple. He then knocks over the money changer's table and the doves and pigeons being sold there. Finally, he quotes... He quotes from the Old Testament and says, my house was to be a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. In this first section, demarcated by Jesus' act of casting, two things should jump out of the page to you. First, Jesus' use of the word cast out or expel. It is a word that ap appears many a time in Matthew's gospel. Only your Bible always translates it as exercise. You see, what Jesus is doing is he is performing an exorcism at the temple. He is ridding the temple of that malady that afflicts it. Namely, money-mongering. Next, we should note that Jesus reaches back into Israel's collective prophetic history and quotes that ancient prophet of old, Jeremiah. You can find the quotation right there. In the seventh chapter, the ninth through 11 verse, Jeremiah writes, Will you steal and murder? Commit adultery and perjury? Will you burn incense to Baal and follow other gods you have not known? And then, then will you come and stand before me in this house which bears my name and say, we are safe? Safe to all these detestable things? Has this house which bears my name now become a den of robbers, but I have been watching declares the Lord. What is Jesus doing? Well, if nothing else, he is providing a blistering critique of the religious establishment, arguing against a faith system that values ritual without righteousness. A praxis where callousness is the currency that drives interpersonal relationship. A church life where selflessness is sacrificed on the altar of expediency. Jesus' language is both precious 
and precarious. Avid readers of Scripture, as you are, I'm sure you know that by the end of the week, Jesus will hang on a cross. But why? E.P. Sanders, the great New Testament scholar, notes that Monday's events, Jesus' cleansing of the temple precipitates his death. But what interest did the Romans have in religious discussions between two rabbinical schools? After all, they didn't crucify Jesus for blaspheming. The charge was sedition. How do we know this? Well, there was a sign on top of the cross, remember? And it read, here is Jesus Christ. The act of cleansing the temple is pregnant with political possibilities. That is the only way that you can explain the Romans taking interest in this otherwise religious squabble. New Testament theologian Neil Quinn Hamilton provides a plausible possibility of how the act of cleansing the temple would have been interpreted through Roman eyes. In essence, he argues that the temple wasn't only the seat for religious praxis. It was also foundational in the economy of the Judean province. Listen to Hamilton's words. Banking is as old as coinage sponsored by the state. Because of the confusion of uncoordinated local coinage, the earliest bankers were money changers who sat at their tables. Temples quickly accumulated large amounts of coin money offered to the gods. Being the property of the gods, these temple funds enjoyed the unique security of divine protection. Consequently, temples were considered the safest place for money in antiquity. This security factor attracted the surplus funds of states, corporations, and private individuals until custody of deposits became a regular feature of temples. Thus, temples became the first banks. In the economy and the geopolitical realities of first century Rome, there was only one person who had access and right to loot the bank. It was the Roman governor. We know this because Pontius Pilate, that famous figure from gospel lore, borrowed and took money from the temple to build an aqueduct. Later on, his predecessor, Florus, the last Roman proconsul, took 17 talents in order to charge for imperial services, which was a bad idea. 
because it escalated into a citywide riot. You see, by Jesus erupting into the temple and suspending its economic activity without the permission of either the Sanhedrin or the Roman officials, Jesus is making a claim. And the claim is, I am king. But claims without critique are baseless. And so Jesus will also provide a critique of a political system which positions people right below prophets. And I don't mean the Old Testament type. And this is where the words of Scripture rub against our flesh. And the sayings encompassed there begin to gnaw at our spirit. For it is, at, it is at this moment that Scripture becomes prophetic, unyielding in its task to offer comfort for the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. I wonder what Jesus would say if we walked across the highways and byways of San Bernardino County and witnessed firsthand the plight of the poor. I wonder what his reaction would be if those journey-weary feet took him to Wall Street and amidst conversations of bear markets and bull markets, he recognized that there are people in our society today that are deprived of even the most basic economic hope. I wonder then if that rabbi from Galilee were, would forgive our participation in a system that promotes inequality or would he excoriate us? But you see, Jesus is about creating new possibilities. Amen. And in one fell swoop, he hijacks the de dehumanizing discourse promoted by both Rome and Jerusalem in order to do something different. Yes. What is he doing, you may, you may ask? Well, it's right there in the text. Matthew continues the narrative by saying that when everyone was driven out of the temple, the lame and the poor and the blind drew near. Amen. And Jesus cured them. I should note that this is the first time where the blind and the lame actually experience fellowship in the temple. Jesus, in essence, is reversing a tradition long held since the Davidic monarchy. You see, when David was attempting to conquer Jerusalem, he was received in the city by mocking chants. Do you remember them? If you ever make it into the city, the blind and the lame, they'll draw you away. Well, apparently, David had a long memory and a short fuse because upon becoming king, he created an edict. You can read it. 
It's found in 2 Samuel chapter 5, verses 6 through 8, in which he basically stated that the lame and the blind would have no place in the temple. That is until Jesus. And then, ooh, then you have the cry of kids. Children singing, Hosanna, Hosanna, the son of David. Next. Oh, next Jesus will again reach into that archive of prophetic history in order to give us a nugget from the past. Have you not heard that it is written that the infants and babes, it is from them that I have ordained praise? Again, Jesus is quoting from the Psalms. He is talking about the eighth psalm, the first and the second verse. And that connection with the psalms further solidifies the link between Jesus and David. Listen to the words of the psalmist as he writes, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. How majestic it is in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. Once the link has been cemented, the reader ought to understand, you and I ought to understand that the purpose of drawing the comparison between David and Jesus is to highlight the differences. Ron Heifetz, professor in leadership from Harvard University, once stated that leadership is the art of managing expectations. and disappointment at a rate people can stand. Well, with apologies to Heifetz, Jesus isn't interested in managing expectations. He is invested in creating a new existence. You see, the Jews are expecting a return to the Davidic monarchy. Luckily for us, luckily for us, Jesus had other plans in mind. And for that, for that we killed him. Author, artist, activist, and theologian Robert Kappen once, says it, once said it, in that wonderful book entitled The Hunt for the Divine Fox, he writes, the human race is and will always be deeply unwilling to accept a human Messiah. We don't want to be saved in our humanity. We want to be fished out of it. We crucified Jesus not because he was God, but because he blasphemed. 
He claimed to be God, and then the gall. He failed up to come to our standards of assessing that claim. It is not that we weren't looking for the Messiah. It's just that he wasn't what we were looking for. It's just that he wasn't what we were looking for. So how is it with your soul? I'll tell you the truth. I'll be open and candid with you today. This week has been a struggle. Maybe it's because life around here has seemed very lonely. After all, most of our staff are enjoying some deserved R&R in the Holy Land. Hi, guys, we miss you. <laughs> or maybe it's because my wife, my beautiful bride, has left with them. <laughs> Hi, babe, I love you. The boys are okay, and I haven't burned down the house. <laughs> no, that can't be it. My six-year-old noticed that it had been a struggle this week. He said, Daddy, don't worry. Preaching is easy. <laughs> All you have to do is get up there, say, Jesus loves you, and then collect an offering. He's right. It should be as easy as Jesus loves you. So why can't I say it? You know what it is? I've given in to the temptation. The temptation of restricting God of compartmentalizing Jesus, of confining him to a space that I find convenient. I mean, sure, we can have our moments of sacred talk as long as we're inside the sanctuary and Sabbath sermonizing. I still find myself keeping him at arm's length when it comes to those pedestrian conversations that define my personhood outside of these walls. I struggle with the realization that Jesus wants everything, both the prophetic and the prosaic. And maybe that's what Monday is about. Maybe Monday is about recognizing that the gospel is an invitation to give everything up to Jesus, to lay it all of his, at his feet, for he is all things to all people. Amen. Maybe the invitation is to allow the gospel to imbue every fiber of your being. Maybe that's what Monday is about. And if that's the case, oh, if that's the case, 
than this beautiful sanctuary? Our wonderful building program? Our stated goal of growing disciples? And even this service are mere echoes and bad echoes of at the best of a deeper reality that is Emmanuel, God with us. So my prayer is that God grant you the courage to, lead, to live openly, to revel in the presence of the one who makes all things new in this time and in this place.